So we're in a series talking about money, and Bill's going to be speaking to us today. And the aim is with our talks, so we're going to have about 20, 25 minutes of talking and an opportunity to minister to one another, to respond as well uh, in worship. So Bill, let me pray for you, come on up, and then I'll, I'll hand over to you. And you can do what you do, which is normally incredibly good. <laughs> Let's pray. Stop it, you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Bill. Thank you for the wisdom that you will speak through him. Thank you for his uh, ability to hear your voice and to deliver a, uh, a very understandable interpretation and a- applicable uh, uh, talk about your word, from your word, through your word. So we say, Holy Spirit, prepare us clear our ears out and get us ready. Take any walls down as we talk about money, that tricky topic. Just take the walls down, Lord. Make us soft-hearted. We want to be ready to receive. Amen. Thanks, Andrew. It's nice being prayed for by Andrew because he doesn't just put a hand on you. He kind of grabs you. You feel embraced and enfolded in his love. So I thank you for that. Um, Here's today's passage. Uh, This is from the end of uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians, the church in Philippi in uh, northern Greece, Macedonia. Um, Paul says this, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learnt to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Uh, Can we have the first slide, please, Rich? So, did anyone watch this over the Christmas holidays? Uh, The traitors. Oh, it's the sun... Uh, we, won't, we won't give it away. Are you enjoying it, Susie? The traitors. Uh, it's all right. There will be no spoiler alerts. Does anyone else know what I'm talking about? Yeah, so it's become quite a popular program. It was on BBC One over Christmas. Um, and the idea is this. 22 strangers are dropped in a castle in the Scottish Highlands with Claudia Winkleman. And they have to complete challenges in order to win up to £120,000. But the twist is that three of them are invited to become traitors. And by bumping off other members of the 22, 
they can get more money for themselves. But no one knows who these traitors are apart from themselves. Um, it's like a psychological experiment. If you asked, how do you take 22 human beings and make them behave appallingly with each other? How do you get them to, to lie, to cheat, to betray, to destroy one another? Um, how do you destroy trust and prevent any, any possibility of relationships between these people? then the answer clearly is dangle the opportunity of £120,000 in front of them. I, I didn't watch it myself. My family loved it. I didn't watch it myself, of course, because I spend the evenings reading Paul's letters in the original Greek, <laughs> as you all know. Um, what I want to suggest is that there is a continuum. Next, I'm not sure if you'll be able to see these slides. Can you see that? There's a, a scale, a continuum. Um, and at one end, I'm going to suggest, you have the love of money, loving money. And at the other end of this scale is loving people and not money. Loving money, not people. Loving people, not money. And I'd, I'd suggest that um, the traitors is what it looks like when you're at the furthest, your right extreme. Okay, that's when you're willing to use people in order to get money. I'd suggest that this passage is a little, the, the Philippians 4 passage that I just read, is a glimpse of what it looks like to be at the other extreme. When you see money as something to be used in order to love people. People are far more important than money at that end. Money is far more important than people and relationships at that end. Um, and I'd suggest we all find ourselves somewhere on that scale. We're all somewhere on that continuum. Now, what did Jesus say? When, um, when someone approached him and said, uh, Teacher, what's the greatest commandment? He, he actually gave two. What was the second of his two greatest commandments. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus commanded us to love people. And what did he tell us about loving money? It's not, as Lizzie says, not a good idea. I think she's paraphrasing. Yet yeah, he said don't. So Jesus is quite clear on this scale which end we need to be aiming for, which direction we need to be moving in. Um, I want to explore this idea a little bit. What, what does it look like to love money above people? What does it look like to love people above money? I think there's a stereotype which the, the traitors kind of captures about what it looks like to love money. And basically, it looks, it's a kind of lust. It's needing more, doing anything to get more. That's when, when we hear Jesus tell us not to love money, I think that's often the picture that comes into mind. We think of some fat cat businessman who's willing to treat his, his or her workers appallingly in order to get more, just to become richer. And I think there's a truth in that. I think there are some people like that. 
if you if you work in business, you maybe one or two names are, are springing to your mind right now. But I think that's probably the minority. I'm sure it's not you or I. We're not like that, are we? So we don't need to worry about this question, do we? Um, That's the stereotype, but I'd point out that love takes many forms. There are all sorts of different ways in which we love. Let me suggest an alternative picture. The love for a parent. The love for a parent. In what way might loving money look a bit like love for a parent? When we're small, how do our parents make us feel? They probably make us feel safe and secure and protected. As we grow up, as we leave home, how often does money take the place of parents? What is it when we're, when we're adults in the world that makes us feel safe, that makes us feel secure, that makes us feel protected? When we're small, our parents make decisions for us. They decide what the shape of our life, where we're going to live, what we're going to do. How often when we grow up does money make these decisions for us? What career are we going to pursue? How are we going to pursue that career? Where? With whom? Where are we going to live? What area are we going to live in? What house are we going to live in? Who decides? Is it money? How are we going to spend our time? Where are we going to go on holiday? Who makes these decisions? Who gives permission? Who says yes and who says no? It's no longer our parents. But I'd suggest for a lot of us, money takes their place. When we're small... Our parents are vitally important to us. We depend on them for everything. And the possibility of losing them, if we're small, is absolutely devastating. We may not be driven like a fat cat businessman to acquire more and more money, but how do we feel about losing the money we have, the prospect of losing what we have? I'd suggest love of money takes many different forms. But look at the contrast in this letter of Paul's. How vitally important, how vitally important is Paul's money to him? I get the impression he just doesn't care. He's just not that interested. Look at this little bit, verses 11 and 12. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I was really struck when I read it again uh, by that word content, uh, autarkes in the Greek. See, I wasn't joking. Which really does mean content. It means a kind of serene self-sufficiency. The idea, everything is in its place, I have everything I need. 
Paul means content. He's not, he's not saying, I have learned to cope. I have learned to struggle on. I have learned to, to survive clinging on with my fingernails when I'm in need. He's talking about contentment. Now, a painter, when they paint a, a, a picture, what's the point where they're content with it? That's where they don't need to fiddle with it anymore. That's when it doesn't need any more changes. Imagine being in need, being hungry, and saying, actually, I don't need to change the situation. I'm content. And now get a load of this. In chapter one of this letter, we discover that Paul is writing from prison. He's in prison. And he's saying this, whatever my circumstances, I'm content. I'm serene. I wouldn't change a thing. Um, How many of us can say that? Notice that this scale, next slide please, Rich, this scale is not about rich and poor. We haven't got rich people down the right-hand end and and poor people down the left-hand end. This is entirely about love. It's about the heart. It's about how vital, how important money is in your heart, your relationship with money, how important it is to you, in comparison with your relationships with people and how important they are. It's perfectly possible to be wealthy and not attached to your wealth. We have some friends who have a house. I was thinking of them when I was wrestling with this question. They have a big farmhouse in Somerset. Um, They're not poor. It's a lovely place. But they're so generous and hospitable with it. And they have so many people coming through. And they just, it's lavish generosity. Because their hearts value people more than money. And God can use people like that. And there are plenty of people who are poor and in need and who are consumed by their love of money. And they're desperate uh, for more. Because they see money as the answer. They're jealous of those with plenty. It's about the heart. It's about love. Is money everything? Or like Paul, are we unmoved, unaffected? Are we free? Are we free from the grip of money? So I'd say that our goal, our goal is the left-hand end of that scale. Um, Jesus commands it. And in fact, in this letter, Paul tells the Philippians to imitate him, to imitate him. He's their model. He should be our model in terms of this relationship with money and being free from the love of money. Yes, but how? How the heck? Um, It's far easier said than done. It's far easier said than done to experience that freedom from money's grip. Are there any clues in this passage? 
Well, I'd suggest there are a couple. Are there any clues about how we might achieve this? Well, here's a fairly big one. This is verse 13. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Paul tells us, how is it possible to be content regardless of our circumstances? Paul's answer is God. It's God who enables us to live free from money. I find this verse fascinating because it's so often taken out of context. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And what comes to our mind? We think of some heroic act. I'm going to take Bristol for Jesus. I'm going to raise a dead person. And we see this verse as a kind of promise that we can claim. Lord, you say I can do all things. So, raise this person from the dead. Make this limb grow back. But it's important to recognize that in context, what Paul has in mind here is being free from the love of money. That's the heroic act that he has in mind. That's the supernatural miracle. It's a miracle taking place in our hearts. To be freed like, like he is from the love of money. To be content in all circumstances. That's what we need God's strength for. And so my, my picture, the continuum, uh, next slide please, Rich. This picture is incomplete. I think the real situation is this one. That's the, the missing dimension. This is a biblical, an Old Testament view of the most important dimensions in our lives. So much of the Old Testament talks about our relationship with God, our relationship with others, and and our relationship with our money and our things, our stuff. And so much of the Old Testament, the, the law, the Torah, and prophecy is about getting these dimensions right, having the right priorities, keeping things in the right place. Loving God, loving others, loving our neighbor, and not loving money. That's, again and again, that's the Old Testament pattern. Uh, We haven't got time to go into the theology, but Alice has suggested I might like to do a podcast looking at the Old Testament roots of this picture. And if you're interested, I I might feel like doing that. Um, But the the thing to recognize is that these dimensions are interrelated. Our relationship with God determines our relationship with money and our relationship with people. You play with one dimension, it has an effect in the other two dimensions. In fact, the way we are with money and the way we are with people is an expression of our relationship with God. It's how we live out our relationship with God. Our relationship with people and our relationship with money is an act of worship because it tells people how much God is worth to us, how important God is in our lives. How does that work? How does that play out? Well, here again, a couple of examples. Um, In verse 19, At the end of this passage, Paul says, next slide please, Rich. 
My God, listen to the pronouns in this verse. My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. It's personal. My God will meet your needs according to his riches. Paul is thinking in these three dimensions. He understands the relationships. How can he be so confident? How can he be so confident that God will meet the Philippians' needs? Because it's my God, I think Paul is saying, and he's done it for me. He's speaking from experience. He knows because he knows because he's experienced God's provision through thick and thin, through plenty and need. He knows that God will come through. And if you have that confidence in God, if if the vertical dimension is that strong, then you can make those kinds of promises. Um, but I think there's another way in which the vertical, the vertical dimension, the relationship with God, affects our love of money or not loving money. And it's this. There's another way in which our, our relationship with God sets us free from loving money, which Paul is a perfect example of. And that is, he's discovered the real thing. He's discovered what really satisfies what really brings contentment. If money satisfies, if money delivers what it promises, why do so many rich people just need a little bit more? Just think about that. Have you ever noticed that? So many rich people, and it's never quite enough. They just need a slightly bigger house. They just need one more pay rise. They just need one more car or one more helicopter or whatever it is. If money made you truly content, you wouldn't see that, would you? Why does it never satisfy? Money seems to promise contentment. It over-promises, but it under-delivers. It's like coffee. I need coffee. One of my needs, my real needs in life is coffee. And so when I get to work, I have a cup of instant because it's all that's available. There's this little kitchen where I work and I make myself a cup of Nescafe. But just imagine if Bristol City Council, God bless them, purchased an Italian coffee machine And there was a supply of freshly ground Colombian beans available. Would I have instant? Why would I be interested when I could have the real thing? And I think what you get permeating this whole letter is that Paul has discovered the real thing. He's discovered what really satisfies. And it's summed up in in this one verse, I think, in, in the first chapter. Um, which is, for me to live is Christ. To live is Christ and to die is gain. That's such a rich, there's richness in those five or so words. To live is Christ. What's he saying? I think he's saying fundamentally two things. He's saying the whole of his focus 
the whole of his goal in life is Jesus, is knowing Jesus better and loving him more. That's what he's most interested in. Jesus is the most important thing in his life. Jesus is what he's pursuing. But I also think he's saying another another thing, which is his whole experience of fullness of life comes from Jesus. He's discovered such satisfaction, such contentment. The word that runs through the whole letter like like a a refrain, the the whole letter sings with the word joy. Again and again and again, Paul talks about the joy, and it kind of bubbles over. The joy and peace, the contentment and the fulfillment that he is experiencing. So let's see if we can connect the dots. His whole focus in life is Jesus, and his whole experience of life is joy, peace, contentment, fulfillment. Do you think the two may be connected? He's discovered the real thing. He's discovered the true source of contentment. And once you do that, then it's easy to loosen our grip on money a bit, I'd suggest. To return to this picture, I think it also works the other way around. Paul has discovered by by following the vertical dimension, by, by pursuing God as his whole aim, he's discovered freedom from money's grip. But I wonder if it also works the other way around, that if our pursuit is money, somehow our capacity to enjoy God is stunted. If we're hungry for more of God, if we want more of him, if we, if we dream of experiencing the joy, the peace, the fulfillment, the contentment, the life that Paul experienced, maybe we just need to loosen our grip slightly on money. Um, I said the, the passage gave us a couple of clues. Here's one more, uh, and it's in this verse. Twice in this passage, Paul says, I have learnt the secret of being content. I have, Paul had to learn it. I don't think, because because money has such a grip on so many of us, I don't think this is something where we can hear it and say, oh yeah, that's a good idea, I'll do it. We have to be led through a process. We have to discover for ourselves that we can trust God and we can find contentment in him. Um, It's a process. And also, I said earlier that this scale isn't about rich and poor, and I think that's true, but I think for those of us who are rich, that process may well look like experiencing a certain amount of need, a certain amount of loss. Um, When we got married, I'm going to finish with a little story. When Emma and I got married, I was a self-employed management consultant. And Emma had recently moved from London, where she was a lawyer, to Bradford, where she was working with a debt counselling charity. Um, So when we got married, I moved to Bradford. I had a house in Bristol with a mortgage. Emma still had her flat in London with a mortgage. And we were paying rent on where we were living in Bradford. So we had 
three sets of outgoings. But it was all right because I had tenants on my house in Bristol. Emma had tenants in her, ha- in her flat in London. Uh, my mental health uh, has never been the most robust. And a few months after we got married, I caught depression. Um, like you, you can if you, if you don't wash your hands or, you know, wear a face mask. Um, so I, and I caught it pretty bad. Um, and so I stopped working. And when you're self-employed, if you stop working, you stop earning. There and then. Um, and almost simultaneously, my tenants in Bristol decided to stop paying the rent. And Emma's tenants in London moved out. So all of a sudden, we were paying two mortgages and rent on a, a house in Bradford, or actually in Saltair, which is a nice bit of Bradford, um, on Emma's charity salary. And yet every month, at the end of the month, we, haven't, we had enough. We, and I still don't understand how. Every month we had enough. We got by. We survived. A, f- a couple of years later, I'd got better. I never went back to the management consultancy. Um, I did a theology degree. And I ended up leading a church. We took over the leadership of a church. But the church we took over was a church in financial crisis. And week after week, I was able to stand in front of the church and say, God is our provider. God will meet our needs. How was I able to stand there with that confidence? Well, because of the journey that we'd been on. I knew in my experience that God is our provider. Um, now, I'm not saying I'm where Paul is on our little scale. I'm some, I'm, I've moved in his direction. I'm still a work in progress. But the question is, are we willing to let Jesus lead us through that kind of process? Because I think that's what it takes. We're doing this series prompted by uh, the cost of living crisis. Or as I saw recently someone saying, the cause he lives. <laughs> the cost of living crisis has prompted in part the idea that we should, we should look at money. And it's easy to see that as a problem. How are we going to wrestle with this problem? How are we going to survive all the challenges? But I'd suggest it's also an opportunity, or it might be. It's the kind of opportunity that Jesus might be wanting to take um, in order to set us free from the grip that money can have in our lives. And the only question is, are we willing if he wants to lead us through that kind of process, are we willing, step by step, to follow him and to discover for ourselves that he is our provider, but he is also our source of life? Andrew. Thanks, Bill. I'm in trouble listening to that. I don't know if you, <laughs> you know, you just listen to that and there's so many things you think, oh, you got me, Bill. 
one of the things that have come out in this series, uh, in, yeah, in a good way, uh, in this series that's really struck me is, is understanding the, the personality of, that money has, that, that, that Jesus helps us to see that, it, that money exerts an influence, not like an inanimate object, but like a personality. As Bill described it, like a parent. Paul Gough was talking about the, the name Manon, um, um, Mammon. Mammon? No, Mammon's part of our church. She's lovely. Mammon, and that being like a name that is, he's exerted because it's like a personality that gets our grips, like a strong relationship that, that creates a stronghold in our lives. So we got a bit of time, and, and one of the things that Bill and I were talking about before is how money can, can put up wall, the topic of money puts up walls straight away for us because it's um, really maybe because it's, it's like one of our parents, like someone criticizing our parents. It's for, we, we know it's not, we know they're not perfect, and it's kind of a, can be a bit of a, challenging relationship but boy we don't want anyone to criticize it you know and it's a bit like that with money i think we just up go the walls so sam do you want to come and um, i thought it'd be good if you could lead us in just one song of worship as we reflect and then we're going to pray after that into that so let me just pray for us as sam comes up and it's an opportunity just to uh, talk to god to listen to god to uh, engage with god about this uh, before we have uh, more chance to to pray together so father holy spirit we thank you for the for the message for the words that Bill has brought. Thank you that you you gently tease apart where we have where we have created unhealthy dependencies and bonds and allowed unhealthy influence of money. And Father, we don't want to build up walls around this topic. We want to be soft-hearted. We want to be open to Jesus, to you, to influencing us, to helping us, to growing us. So come, Holy Spirit. Lord, would you speak to us more? further as we as we uh, worship or reflect as Sam leads us in a song so feel free to sit stand whatever whatever works for you